This is exactly right. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. And we are so excited to be talking SVU, sadly crimes, and then also celeb guests. And we have so much to discuss up top, though, because Kara went to see Elton John with her friends. I did. And I gotta know everything. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. It's just like a bucket list person I've always wanted to go see. And I really wanted to see him when he was with a Billy Joel in the city when I lived there and I never got around to it. Or I remember like asking Jared and he was like, no thanks. And I was like doubting our relationship because I was like, who would say no thanks to going to that concert? But he's weird. Anyway, I had the best time. I went with three of my girls from college. We just had a blast. Like it was at the stadium where the Padres plays. So it was very big. They do like um, they do like piano cam on him a lot, where all you see are like bedazzled sleeves and then and then pianos, like him banging on the keys. But it's just hit after hit. I mean, I think he sang maybe two songs that I didn't know super well, but like everything else is just like the hits. And he has no opening act. He goes on at eight o'clock. They're like, don't be late. He went on at like 8.05. I mean, truly. And just starts and puts Wait, on a great so show. Do they what is what time does it say on the ticket? And does it say don't be late? There's no opener come at eight? Because usually people are late to concerts. Like I wonder it if people says just doors know. at six. Oh, doors it's like at doors six. Doors at six. Be in your seat by eight. Elton starts on time and there is no opener. Okay, cool. Yeah. Gaga Gaga didn't have an opener. I remember Madonna didn't have an opener. I think Cher did not. No, Cher had some Belgian band. Cher, did, Cher maybe when I saw Cher had like a DJ or something at the yeah. beginning. But yeah, I don't think it was like an opener. They don't need it. Um, so what's the demo? Is it like a lot of elderly, young, over, everyone? All over the damn place. Like it was a lot of older people, but it was like a lot of young people and like our age and stuff. It was really all over the place. Like truly, he's just such a worldwide, all ages talent. And he was like talking on stage about how he's like, gonna retire and spend time with his kids. And I go, bullshit, I'll believe it when I see it. I was like pretty drunk and was like, he's never gonna stop. <laughs> he's not. They're all liars. They're all narcissists. They need it. Cher's they need on like it. her 10th farewell tour. They're you heard liars. Cher? This is just gossip about old legends. Like we could do a, like a legends gossip minute. Cher is dating this new young man. It just came out, this like new young guy. And he's Amber Rose's ex who apparently cheated on her like crazy. So I really hope this man doesn't fuck with Cher. I mean, <laughs> she'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. She'll have you killed. Um, <laughs> I was in New York and I did have a lovely moment. I was in a car going over the Williamsburg Bridge. And I just looked to the right and it was like a movie. We were in traffic, so it wasn't moving. So it was just like the full night like lit up skyline, like truly like a fairy on the water. The moon was huge. And then Kelly Clarkson started playing on the radio. Um, you know, the like, the moment, the big hit. Her American- A moment like this? Yes. And then a moment <laughs> like this started playing. And I was, I truly started to cry. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is what, this is what I live for. I'm like, this is it. <laughs> 
And I asked him Man. to turn it up and I just like looked at the moon and skyline and the water and I was just like, you know what, Kelly, it is. This is the moment. It is the moment. Some and people felt- wait a lifetime <laughs> for a moment like this. I love it. <laughs> and it felt really cool. And I did I a thing for the first time. You know, our friend Yasser Lester and his brother made a movie. Mm-hmm. And I got to go to like the rough cut screening and have a paper and like they ask for notes and stuff. Oh yeah, I've been to one of those. I've never done that. I didn't know what was up, but it was like a really intimate group in some office, like little theater space. I don't know. It felt like, it felt cool. I felt like a Carrie Bradshaw moment. I had to leave early. You know, I gave the notes I gave, but I loved it. I'm glad they had other people there. I would say that. <laughs> they, they just invited you and they're like, it all hinges on what Lisa Traeger thinks of this movie. I just wish I could be more helpful, but I was literally just like amazed someone can make that. Like, I was just I like, know. 10. They're like, I'm like, 10. Yes, I loved this. They're like, what parts are lagging? Like, where can, you know, it's a rough cut and they want You're guidance. Like, no notes. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Everything rules. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, this was great. This was great. I laughed here. And then my other friend, friend um, who stayed till then. She goes, oh no, people were giving like real helpful notes. And I wish I could be that person with them too, but I was not. Did you see Aaron, our friend Aaron? Uh-oh. Did she get Oh, caught, in the movie. Cut? In the movie. Yeah. Yes. I, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. She is in the movie and she is uh, in the beginning and very fun. It was, oh, okay. it's great. Okay. I was like, uh-oh, cutting room floor. <laughs> no, she's definitely in it. Well, also Chelsea's in that scene. He's, he can't That's cut out his That's wife. She said, she goes, I'm not going to get cut because I'm in a scene with his wife. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was really good. I don't even know how much I can chat since it's such rough apps. But just impressive. Just impressive. The skills people have. And it takes, I mean, years because, yeah. And it was just um, an impressive, cool moment, I feel. And as usual, we're in the time machine. So this episode will be coming out a couple days after everyone will have done Thanksgiving. Hopefully you're all getting over yeah, hopefully you'll all be getting over whatever trauma your family inflicted on you this past weekend. <laughs> and, what are you uh, doing, BT Dubs? I'm I'm home. I'm staying home. I'm having so far one family over uh, that you know that has one little kid, and then maybe and maybe Aaron, who I just talked about, but not sure. Are you, and you're not cooking, I assume. So what are we doing? No, no. The other mom is a good cook. Like she's going to do a roast turkey because like I don't even eat meat. My kids don't eat meat. Aaron doesn't either. So like I'm going to do potatoes, cranberry out of a can and like one other thing. And she's going to do sweet potatoes, green beans and the, the turkey. And so it's like, we're just like splitting it and we're like, let's just not make, oh, I'm going to do a vegetarian stuffing too. Cause I love stuffing. I love like stuffing. stuffing fucking rules. But I don't like the kind that's been inside the bird or whatever. Yeah, no. I I no. eat meat and I don't love it. I just yeah. I want um yeah. I want some normal stuffing. Yeah, yeah, so Thanksgiving will um have come and gone. Yes, but- and we will actually when this episode airs, we will be zipping up our suitcases in anticipation of heading out to Orlando. Uh please come see us tomorrow night, Wednesday the 30th of November in Orlando. We're so excited. Then on Thursday we'll be in Tampa. What's up? Tampa. We'll be there on the 1st of December, and then we have a day off. And then on Saturday the 3rd, we do a little afternoon show at the Miami Improv, um, and that's uh, in Miami. So come welcome us to Miami with that song from Will Smith, and, uh, (laughs) you know, come see us in Florida. And then, of course, you know, we've got more dates in December, Texas, Sacramento, and then um, all of our 
East Coast dates in January. So go to thatsmessuplive.com if you have not had a chance to buy tickets yet because some of these shows are selling out. So go get them, babies. Girl, I have a question. So I'm on the flight. I'm very sleepy this morning and I'm resting. I'm sleep, you know, I'm sleeping on the flight, but I could tell we've landed. You know, I understand what's happening, but the guy next to me poked me to wake me up and truly, I don't think I've ever acted so. I was like, don't touch me. And he was like, well, you were sleeping. And then I grabbed my bags and it was still a line. I go, yeah. And now what? Like, why would you, like, why are, we, why are you touching me? He poked you to wake you up when the flight landed? Yes. That's crazy. And I was so aggressive towards him, but it's like, don't touch. I get, it, it's not even time to leave. It's not like people have passed us. Like we truly just grounded. Like the door wasn't yeah, open. You would have, you would have like all the people trying to pull their carry-ons out of the top. You would have woken up naturally. And even if you hadn't, could, did he have to like get by you or what? Yeah, I'm always an aisle. Um, but like, I just hated being poked awake by a stranger. And I was just, and he seemed alarmed when I said, don't touch me, but it's like, don't. And I don't know if I told you this, but a couple of weeks ago, stop me if I've already talked about it on the pod. I'm um, sitting out, um, you know, at the cellar, whatever, me and Jared Fried are sitting. A guy comes up to us and compliments us. Great. He shakes Jared's hand and is like, oh, hell yeah, you were funny. Uh, comes to me, I'm sitting, hugs me, kisses my neck. What? Goes, you were great. Kisses my neck like twice. And I wish I treated him like I treated this poke guy. And I wish in this moment I went like, what are you doing? But I was kind of alarmed. And then he walked away and I go, Jared, he just kissed my neck. And he goes, wait, I thought you knew him. I assumed he, the way he hugged you, I thought you knew him. I go, I did not know him. How crazy. You can't kiss anyone's neck that's not a sexual. That Like, a neck kissing is purely sexual. There is no platonic neck kissing. I wish I did something and got him banned or something. I just could, did not act fast enough. And then I just looked at him and I go, you don't even have to worry about it. I'm like, no guy would ever do this to you. Like, no one would grab you and just kiss your neck like that. So twisted. I mean, famously, a big comedy booker of a festival kissed my hand on two different occasions. That is nothing compared to your neck. Neck is not okay. Neck is like, not I am okay. Blown away. And no, you have not mentioned this on the pod because <laughs> I would fucking remember it. I'm like so gross because it's like, God, neck is like basically sex. I mean, to me, someone <laughs> kissing your neck is like you're about to fuck. Like, I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I wish I said something, but I truly was just like, what? Just, like, <laughs> was, do, he, was the guy trying to hit on you? Do I know him? Is that hitting on It doesn't matter if you know him. I don't care if you gave him a kidney. That is such a weird fucking thing to do. That is so fucking weird. Anyway, listen, we, let's make this a short intro. You are tired from traveling. I have to go take my children somewhere. So let's, let's get this episode started. You you have Trixie Mattel's number. I need you to ask her, when does she sleep? I need to know. I need to know when she's sleeping. I need to know how she's functioning. Because of the constant, because of the constant travel. She's busier than me. Is she sleeping? I want to know what she's up to. Great question. So if you can please find that out for me. 
That would be great. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. And I just wanted to remind you guys about our awesome uh, existing and new merch in our merch store that you can find at exactlyrightmedia.com slash shop. It is the holiday season, baby. So go out and get some of our cute ass merch. We've got an adorable hot pink tank top, a zip up hoodie. And then we just added this super cute. That's messed up pullover sweatshirt that's purple like classic purple that we talk about all the time on the show and a super fun beanie and we're adding new items as well so keep checking back there and I just wanted to let you guys know to order ASAP if you want stuff in time for Christmas because December 8th is the last day to order with standard shipping for delivery by 1223. So we want to make sure you guys get your shit in time. So yeah, go to the link in our bio on our Instagram that has all of our stuff or exactlyrightmedia.com slash shop. Um, and you can head to the TMU page and check out all of our stuff. All right, guys, don't go anywhere because we have a hot, hot, hot episode for you. Very requested. All right. Secrets exhumed. Highly requested, I would say. Highly so requested. So requested, you guys. We've been working on it. And we're, we got it, baby. Um, season 14, episode 14. You know, I love that. I love a little numbers <laughs> game. And uh, we open up in the squad room. Olivia's packing up a box and Finn is walking behind her with a box. And he's just like, I don't want to move. And Benson's like, it's six feet. Like, could you just <laughs> shut the fuck up? Um, and Cragen's like, new year, new me. I want to shake things up. You guys are getting too complacent. But Finn just likes his old desk. And that's that. And Amaro's like, oh, do you need a grief counselor? I love a joke. <laughs> I love a joke. And um, usually he's just sad at, you know, about his wife or shooting an unarmed kid, but here, a joke. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, you don't get that much chuckle out of, out of old uh, Nick Amaro. And then Finn's like, yeah, easy. You don't have you don't have to move your desk. Like, don't fucking do that. And then uh, Munch walks in and he's like, so I'm leaving for a few months and you guys are rearranging the furniture? What's going on? And then Cragen's like, oh, looky here, the guy who left us for cold case. So this was like the in-between years of Munch where he was like in and out or did he leave and come back? I tried to look at the dates on IMDb and I was like, I can't, I don't have time for this. Yeah, I wonder if he was just like, I want to be in Paris for half the year. So can I just like go to a different unit? But I like still come back to shoot episodes here and there. I wonder if he works or he's truly munch vibes where he's just like, I will never work again. Thanks for my residuals and I live cheaply. I mean, I don't even know if it has to be that cheap. These people must make a ton off residuals. It's playing constantly and their main characters. And they have the good deals. Yeah, I'm sure the yeah. new people don't have like yeah. the amazing deals like everyone else. So Munch has some good news though, kind of, but yeah, good. There, um, So cold case, there was a hit on an unsolved rape murder from 1987, the year I was born. And he hands the file over to Amaro. And Rollins is here too. It's a full house. I'm obsessed with this episode. So, and then for 1987, Rollins goes, that's not cold, that's frigid. Does that count as a joke? I don't know. For Rollins... <laughs> um, and so then um, it's Brian Traymore, 52, and he was picked up in Miami on a cocaine possession. They took way too long to process the DNA. He's actually already served his three months and is being released in Florida tomorrow. So Cragen's going to start some extradition papers, and then Benson and Amaro book the next flight to Miami. And Finn's like, you know, I can go to Miami. And the cat. <laughs> It's so funny. He goes, Captain, I really got a feel for the scene down there. Like, he's like, come on, send me. <laughs> um, but he's making him stay with Rollins, his bestie, to work. Um, and so now we're in Miami. It's bright, baby. And I wonder if this is where Dexter Morgan worked. Like, I wonder if they hung out. 
I do not think they went on location to Miami. I think they went and fat, like turned the lights on somewhere in Chelsea Piers, and now that's what this is. Well, I didn't think they go went to Miami, but Dexter Morgan's also not a real man. Oh, I know. <laughs> but, well, that's Miami Metro. Different. It's a totally, that's a totally fake police department than Miami PD. Oh, so these are, so they would not be yeah. crossing paths. Yeah, they wouldn't be crossing paths. <laughs> this wasn't yeah. a Family Guy <laughs> Simpsons crossover episode. I was like, Kara, I know they didn't go to Miami. <laughs> Like, you fucking No, I bitch. just think it's funny that, like, to portray <laughs> Miami, they probably just went to one of their own sets and turned the lights on. Because, like, yeah. it's so fucking dark <laughs> everywhere on SVU. That's so true. And, you know, <laughs> I haven't, I've never spent this much time on a set like I have on Michelle's show. Usually I'm in and out in a day. And it is cool to see what the lighting does. No wonder you have to wait for lighting. Like, it is incredible what they fucking do with these lights. And they they talk in a language I don't know. They're like, five watt, 20%, sp sparkle over here, bring the paper. And I'm just oh, like, yeah. oh my God, it's the afternoon. Like, it is really, really kind of cool. I took a lighting class in college. My teacher's name was Blue, just Blue. Um, and he was like a full hippie man, like so cool. And he would just, it was, it was lighting for theater. So not quite television, but all we would do was walk in the woods and he would be like, do you see how the light drifts down through that tree? Like that's all we, like I got credit for that. That's oh, a great God. class. It was great. In high school, I took stagecraft and you learned like all of it and you had to get 25 hours on the crew to get a passing grade and it was just everything. And so we had to do a light presentation. You pick three colors and then to a song you like, light yeah. objects. I, wait, you're bringing me back. I had to do some kind, not to a song, but I had to do a presentation too where I was like, I had to set the lighting schematic for like three scenes or something. Yeah. Well, the song I chose oh, was, God. Ro was Roxanne from Moulin Rouge. Yes. About the cheating. The tango. <laughs> the tango. So it was like moody and sexy. I love that song. I, <laughs> I love that fucking song. It slaps. Like that's one of the best songs on Moulin Rouge. But in high school theater, the boy, like the student who was really into lighting, him and his girlfriend would fuck up on the route, like rafters all the time. Of course. Yeah. 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 Shout out. They also thought they were going to get married, which I think is, I love high school people that are like, we're in this forever. I just, I like that vibe. Yeah. Um, so Benson's in short sleeves, Amaro's in a polo to prove, hey, we're in Miami. <laughs> and all of a sudden she hates it. She's like, ugh, I hate it. And Amaro's like, the sun, the coffee, the people. And she goes, the heat, the bugs. And he's like, a Cuban sandwich. And she goes, I hated it. And it's like... <laughs> You're always trying to go on vacation. Like, you love the Bahamas. And then he says it. He's like, well, you never complain about the Bahamas. And it's like, why does she hate Miami and not the Bahamas? Is it that she different? She does love the fucking Bahamas. I think also coming to Miami for work where you, like, have to wear dark jeans and, like, a button-up, like, like, blouse. Maybe that's, like, more annoying. I kind of love that she's just, like, ride or die New York. Like, New York is the only cool place to live. To live? No one's making her move there, but it's like they had time for a Cuban sandwich and a coffee. Like, you hated it? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I, I'm just shocked by this. Like, I, it's kind of like uh, Sex in the City when Miranda goes out with the guy who hasn't left Manhattan in a decade and he's proud yeah. of it. And it's like, you can... Th I think New York's the best place in the world that I've been. And I still would love to go to Miami. Yeah, yeah. Which will we, we will be there. We will be there soon. <laughs> so a polo wearing cop comes in. He's like, what up, guys? We got a problem. And they're like, wait, Brian Tramer is being released today, right? And they're like, 
yeah, but the FBI beat you to the punch. And they're so confused. We walk over, get me a drum roll. It's Agent Dana Lewis, a.k.a. Star, a.k.a. Marsha Gay Harden, friend of the podcast, our first Oscar winner on the show, a drag race fan. And we're happy to see her here on her third appearance on SVU as the same character. I just gave you a moment if you wanted to say something, but I will continue. Oh, I'm just like, I'm just like still so baffled she did our podcast. I'm so excited. It like just yeah. makes me so happy that she did it. Like, and off, right off the bat, we were nobody. We were nobody. Yeah, and we came out and swinging. she trusted us. Yeah. Kate Burr, yeah, we really came out swinging. So she has a side part gelled low bun. Um, and they high five. There's some handshakes. Amaro asks what the FBI is interested in with this case. And she asks, she answers that he's actually a prime suspect for three other rape murders and that it's a serial. Sacramento, Philly, Washington, and two in New York. Amaro fights for the case. And he's like, these aren't even federal charges. We want this. And it's like, who cares? Go swim in a pool. Have a cocktail. Try to fuck Benson. Like, live your life. <laughs> Cheat on your wife. Um... <laughs> So she should, she suggests working together on this and Benson warns Nick she doesn't actually mean it's a question. Um, and then there's a buzzer and Harold Perrineau rolls in. He's in a wheelchair and he's very well known for another wheelchair part, which is kind of wild because um, he's he's a walking man, I think. Um, yes. But in, in Oz, he's in a wheelchair the whole time and he's the main narrator of Oz. Oh, like, he, he is. Yeah, he's like he does little poem riddles. So he's in this wheelchair in a glass box in the middle of like this prison and he'll be like, riddle me this, riddle me that. And like, he'll do oh. a little, and then the episode starts and then something dramatic will happen and he'll be like, don't you remember my riddle? So yeah, that's like yeah. what he is in Oz. I am know him from many things. He's very prolific, but I love him from Claws. He plays Nisi Nash's brother on Claws and he's like, I don't know if they specifically say if he's like neurodiverse or on the autism spectrum or what, but that's who he plays. I don't know if that's maybe, I'm sure people will write and tell me, but like, I don't know if that's maybe controversial now that you would want to have somebody who's actually neurodiverse play that part. But he, I thought he gave it like, he didn't play it like a cartoon character and that show is so cartoony. Like he played it really real and I really like loved his portrayal. I thought he was great. Good. Yeah, I heard nothing. Yeah. I gotta watch Claws. Yeah. It's it's off the fucking walls. It's so good. Um, so Amaro, Benson, and Lewis are all surprised he's in a wheelchair and they let him know that, you know, we have a warrant for your arrest and he's obviously sad about it. What an emotional roller coaster. He just wanted to do a little bit of coke and now he's caught um, for like decades old crimes. Um, and they fill him in that it's rape and murder and it's finally caught up to you. And he's super confused and looking at the court papers and Lewis grabs the chair and starts pushing him off as the credits start to roll. Now we open back up on a cork board in the squad room. Um, he was paralyzed from the waist down in a bus accident in April 1988, three months after his last suspected attack. Finn asks if we're sure he's guilty of all five and Dana's like, yeah, it's the same pattern. All women rapes, tied up, strangled with athletic tape. He wore latex gloves and stuffed them in the women's mouths. He was an assistant equipment manager for the Atlanta Barons baseball team between 86 and 88 and away game schedule puts him in every single city at the time of these murders. Rollins then asks like how they got so lucky with the DNA since back in the day, they didn't always collect that stuff. So it's Munch's time to shine and he has all the answers. So it came from a cold case in Sacramento and then the New York ran the DNA from the rape kits 10 years ago, but there were no hits until Brian got caught up and arrested with this cocaine charge in Miami. And they only, they assume like he hasn't been committing crimes all this time just because he's in the chair and he would have been like out there raping if 
he could. Um, Teresa Gray is in is Teresa Gray is the Sacramento victim, and Gina Mantos, the first New York victim. And then Dana Lewis says they're reaching out to other cities to expedite. And Craig is like, let's get a confession. And we're lucky he waived his right to counsel. And Benson wants in there with Nick. And Craig is gonna allow Dana Lewis to watch. Um, Rollins gets a ping on her phone and is like, hold up, we got a break. Is Gina's former roommate. They found her. So we go to Williamsburg Hospital, and our girl is a medical professional. Everyone in winter wear and Rollins has like expert scarf tying around her neck. Um, she gives us the goods that her friend Gina was a slut <laughs> and she liked the players <laughs> more than the sport but was always at sporting events trying to smash and she wanted to meet Michael Jordan and they ask if she can help ID a suspect and she's like, that was so long ago and they're like, please and she's like, okay. So she gets, um, she goes through the photos on an iPad and when it gets to Harold, she goes, maybe. Okay, he looked right past me. I remember him. Uh, sports bar a couple months before the girl was killed. And like, told you- I, can I just stop for a second? I don't remember people I've like had sex with 10 years ago, let alone a guy that maybe looked past me at a sports bar 15 years ago. I mean, like, maybe I just can't with some of the identifications of people. Maybe she thought he was hot and she was pit- like, it, she was jealous of Gina. So like, yeah. You know, he worked for the team, but like Gina, she was jealous. She says it. She's jealous of Gina. Guys didn't look at her, only at her friend. And people paid her. Oh, and that her parents paid her rent and like she was poor. So maybe it was like a really traumatic evening at the bar where no Mm -hmm. one wanted to fuck her. I don't know. So then she walked in and found her and it was horrible. And all of a sudden, or was she happy? We don't know. So the photo, I guess not, but... She learned a lesson that day. So the photo of Gina is thrown onto the table in interrogation. And they're like, you remember her, Benson says. And he's like, Gina doesn't ring a bell, but she's cute. And he says he doesn't remember her any or know anything about her. And they let um, him know that the roommate ID'd him. And he's like, it was the 80s, sweetheart. You know how many women I talked to in the 80s? And she's like, yep, you treat women like games. Lure them in, tell them you're some big deal. And he's like, I never lied about my job. And then Amaro needs to dunk on this guy more. And he's like, sure, but they didn't actually want to hang out with you. They wanted to meet the players, not the equipment guy. Oh, and he goes, yeah, I did all right. It was different back in the day before the chair. And again, Amaro's like, oh yeah, when you can walk and fuck, remember those good old days? And it's like, leave this guy. I mean, I guess he's a rapist (laughs) murderer, but like, they're like bullying him. And he says, if I were you, I'd remember who I was fucking and not since you can't fuck anymore. And all you have is memories. And Harold changes his demeanor. He's so offended. He's such a good actor. And he says, fine. I remember meeting her and they go, there's DNA on her body and we know you were with her. And he says, fine. So I went home with her. doesn't mean I killed her. Benson leans in and says, Brian, let me ask you something. That bus hit you and broke your spinal cord and it didn't just cripple you. It made you impotent. Leave him alone. Like, how are you making me defend a rapist murderer? Like, I... (laughs) Um, they're like, you've had 25 years to think about that accident. You ever think it was karma? And he looks at her with disgust. And we cut to Rollins greeting Mr. and Mrs. Stanger, Stanger, Patty Stanger, I'll say Stanger, um, uh, who were called in and hopefully they found who killed their daughter. So they show suspect the photos of the suspects to the parents. And of course, the dad's like, I don't really know these guys. And it's like, why would you know random guys that your daughter fucked? Like, that would be weird. <laughs> 
And they say Kira wouldn't have gone with a man like that. And I'm like, do you mean black? Like, this seems kind of <laughs> bad. Yeah. And Finn and Rollins do a little look at each other and then ask, like, well, was the daughter a basketball fan? And they're like, no, she likes music, hated sports. We're from Vermont. <laughs> and he is doing a pretty good Vermont accent, I have to say. Oh, He's really? Like, she hated spots. Like, yeah, he it's... Vermont's like a weird, like a weird country Boston accent in a weird way. Like, uh, but he is doing a good accent, this guy, I think. And Rollins is like, maybe you didn't know everything she did for fun. And he goes, no, we met Noah, her fiance, like two weeks after she met him. Like they were so in love. And that's why they knew that the cops were wrong about her being killed by a random man at a bar. It's just like not her life. So she was a kindergarten teacher. Noah was traveling on business. And she remembers that she called the mom and was like, I miss my guys so much. Like, um, I, we really don't think this man you have killed our daughter. So we're back with Harold and there's tons more photos on the table and they're pushing to get a confession. And Benson's pacing, like, Sacramento, February 1987. Teresa, your first victim. Then he says, yeah, yeah, she screamed when I did her. And Amaro continues, victim two, Philly, Marlene. He says, yes, Washington, Diane. Yeah, she just laid there for this Gina. This is kind of weird, too, that, like, we just jump into this scene where he's fully confessing now. Yeah, we like, gotta assume a couple hours Two minutes by. ago, he was like, what do you mean? Just because I had sex with her doesn't mean I killed her. And now he's like, yep, did her, did her, did her. Like, Maybe the bullying about him being impotent helped. Like, I don't yeah. know. So then, uh, oh, Gina, she was nuts. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I did them all. What can I say? And then they're like, number five, Kira, New York. And he goes, no, I never met her. And they seem stumped. And Cragen's like, it's been over 15 hours and he won't confess to the fifth. And Benson's like, what do we have on her? Dana Lewis repeats all the overlapping elements of the case. And Rollins is in, a, um, is in the meeting too, filling them in on what the parents said and how she wouldn't take home a stranger from the bar. Um, and then also forensics are negative on prints, blood, and fluids. So Lewis is like, okay, we got the gloves. What do we have? Have we swiped the inside of the gloves? Like, people, people, let's get moving. We got to find some evidence. So Benson's like, okay, we'll make another call to cold case. So Cragen's like, honestly, it gets lonely there. So why don't you pay them a visit and let them know the FBI is breathing down our necks? He says, take Munch. They love him over there. And I can't tell if it's sarcastic or sincere. <laughs> Thoughts? Um, Sarcastic. Okay, so yeah. they hate him. <laughs> and we're off to the storage room. It's Rollins and Munch and uh, so, so many boxes piled super high. It's a super mess. And Detective Emily Ling, played by Sue Kim, is there. And she's been in two other episodes of SVU. Um, video killed the radio star and Manhattan Vigil. And she's walking them through all the boxes and I feel like she seems annoyed. Um, and then the log says there should be latex gloves, athletic tape, and fingernail clippings from the Vic. She gets the box down. Uh-oh, someone got there ahead of them 10 years ago. They were checked out by a Detective O'Reilly and there should be another box too. And then it pulls back to all the boxes and it's like, fuck, like... The second box can be our ticket to the evidence, but there's so many boxes. What do we do? So now we're back in interrogation and they keep just like, number five, Kira, New York. You did it. And he says, no, she's not even my type. Red hair? Yuck. Um, I didn't do her. And they're Shady. like... And they're like, we can prove it. We have your DNA. And he says, whatever you say. And Amaro goes, no, we need to hear you say it. But like, he admitted to the others. Why would he lie? Like, I just right. hate when they're just so onto something. And then I'm like, like, why do you even need to get him on another count of murder? You got him on four. Like, 
He's I think go it's just about closure for the parents. I think that's all it's like usually about. It's like closing the case and like getting the closure for the. Uh, it's just, it's like, just get him yeah. on other stuff. He says, I want to get out of this room. And Benson's like, that's not going to happen until you tell the truth. And he yells, I didn't touch this bitch. And the camera pulls back to reveal Craig and Lewis watching this all go down. He then again yells, I hate redheads. <laughs> and then is like, I'm going to ask for a lawyer if you keep playing these games. And Cragen's like, why is he doing this? Lewis says to Cragen, Cretan probably knew that she was pregnant. She was two months along at the time of the crime. It was left off the autopsy report to save the family. So the FBI knew. How did, how did he know? And she says, oh, she probably told him when she was begging for her life. She says, Captain, I realize this is New York, but I know him. Thank you, she says. He lets her in without even saying a word. She comes in and introduces herself and tells the detectives, your captain said you can take a break and we're going to keep talking. He's all yours, agent, Amaro says. And they both walk out. So she walks in. She's like, hey, I'm, here's your friend. You know, you're going back to prison in that chair. That sucks. There are places where you'll be lucky to get out of that chair or lucky to even get a bucket. But there are other places that are more enlightened. And he's like, and then he's like, what do you want? And she says, I know you killed her. And then they're like, no one has to know about that. Just tell me the truth right now. Everything was going to be all right. He asks, she was pregnant and she takes it as fact, like a little word game. Like, see, I knew you knew. And she says, I know you've had a tough road, stuck in that chair, people looking right through you, nobody knowing what you're capable of, but I see you and I saw you back then. And it cuts to Benson being pissed that Craig and took them out. And they're like, we were right there. And it's like, it has been 15 hours, so... Maybe you weren't right there and maybe you should take a break after 15 hours. Like, yeah. I don't know how you're still mad. And Cragen's like, listen, it doesn't hurt to switch it up. Amaro asks Liv if she's got a second and she scurries off as we hear the voiceover of Lewis saying what it was like to be with a real man. And it cuts back to them. So she's like, they didn't appreciate you and here you are. And she was just like, I bet it felt really good to tell the truth about those girls. Right, Brian? Just lift off your shoulders. And he agrees. And she says, it's like a pressure pushing down on uh, on your head like a brick. She's like, let it go. She's like, I think the man who did this is not the man you are today, but you have to own up to it to move on. I want you to have peace. Brian, don't you want that too? Peace? And he says, yes. Well, take another look, she says, and see if you remember her. And she says, so pretty so young, those eyes. And we see all the photos on the desk and the crime scene pics are very vivid and scary. And she says, do you remember? Harold looks super sad and says, I remember. Amaro's filling Benson in um, on Rollins' evidence box escapades. And the detective who checked the boxes out was unrelated to the case and doesn't remember anything. And then uh, she says, cold case, more like lost case. Okay, Carrie Bradshaw. <laughs> um, <laughs> A man walks in and asks to speak to Detective Rollins, um, and he's Noah Bunning, and he was Kira's fiance. Um, her parents called, and so he flew in from Seattle quickly. And Dana Lewis comes out into the squad room excited and gloating, and the man Noah goes, Dana? And he recognizes her, but is also confused. They hug. She tells Noah, I think we finally got him. And Amaro is suspicious. Um, and like him and Benson exchange glances, which leads us to like a little dun-dun moment. So we're back to exactly where we were, just back in the squad room. And Benson doesn't buy the confession. And she's like, wait, he confessed to Kira too? And she says, yes. I mean, you took him to the edge. I just flipped him over. And Noah's like, I can't believe this. And Dana says, I know, it's all a shock. I got to get my team. I'm going to call them and um, I'll fill you in later. Cragen says that Nick can do that. And she quickly agrees, says, of course, and 
says we'll catch up later. Nick grabs Noah and they walk off. Benson and Dana stay to talk and Cragen is going to call the DA. Nick then swirls back without Noah to be like, that's so weird. You said you didn't know the family. And she's like, well, the parents, but yeah, but I, you know, this Noah, um, we've actually known each other since college. And Amaro doesn't like that she never mentioned that. And Benson's got her girls back and is like, that was 25 years ago, bro. Chill out. And she explains that she was a senior. He was a freshman. They went to Tulane. She says that he had a crush on her, but that his life was like turned upside down. And we pan to Noah and he's looking at the photos of the suspects and And he's like, none of these guys mean anything. And he laughs when Amaro asks if they watch basketball together. He's like, she's from Vermont. Hello. (laughs) Um, Cross-country skiing is life. Um, She's not a sports gal. So the night of the murder, he was at Duke because he was a textbook salesman. He then goes into a little monologue. Like, he doesn't think about it every day. But since, you know, he's gotten married since then. He's gotten a kid. He got divorced. Um, but not a month goes by that something doesn't remind him of Kira. He gets up and he's being flooded with memories and thoughts. And he shares that her parents never bought what the cops were selling about her bringing some random guy home. And he's like, there must have been drugging or a break-in or something and mentions Dana. And Amaro is like, Agent Lewis? This guy called her when it happened. And he's like, so you stayed in touch after college? And he reveals that they dated on and off. Amaro responds with an oh. He asks if they talked a lot about the case. And he said, we didn't do much talking. You know what I mean? And we do. He asks (laughs) if uh, Kira being pregnant was planned. No, he chuckles. In fact, he freaked out at first, but then realized it was meant to be. So he stopped seeing Dana and says that he always knew Dana wasn't the one. Amaro runs to Daddy Cragen to spill the beans. He asks if he heard uh, Brian do the confession, and Cragen did not catch the end of the confession. Amaro starts spiraling, and it's like, it doesn't match up, boss. And Benson walks in behind into the office. She says, Nick, we're good. Dana gave me the blow-by-blow. And he's like, well, did she tell you that she dated Noah on and off after college? And Benson's like, I mean, she's a real private person. Amaro's like, if she talked cases with him, he could have known the MO and did it. And Benson's like, his alibi checked out out, but I guess we can double check it. So they're going to double check. So then they're like, why don't we find the OG detective to the case and ask like some more questions to him? And so then they ask, so when Lewis broke into the interrogation, was that your idea or his? And it was hers. And she was obsessed with Brian. And Benson's like, if you think Noah's punk ass tricked her, there's not a chance. And they're like, well, maybe she's protecting this dork. They did date. And Finn and Rollins go talk to the detective from that night. His name's Jerome Howard. And he's played by Roscoe Orman, who was on Sesame Street for 422 episodes as Gordon. Wild. Yeah. Wild. A legend. A, a, chi- a children's developmental legend. <laughs> um, and he has a fun pattern sweater on that I'm obsessed with. And he says that she was a genuine victim. And I do hate that phrasing. Um, <laughs> but he said, not a drop of liquor in the house. And it's like, so if you have a bottle of vodka in the freezer, you're not a real victim. It's like, yeah, I hate police culture. Um <laughs> But Kira was a teacher. Um, the fiance's airtight alibi, there like it was receipts, airplane tickets, phone records. And after interviewing him, there was like no way. His heart was super broken. Rollins is like, was the FBI there? And he's like, ugh, yeah, they had some young girl profiler. And she acted like it was her crime scene. And there, um, and that we were just the hired help. And Finn asks if she had mentioned uh, she knew the fiance. And he says, nope, she was all business. You know what I'm thinking about? Like the FBI's 
is always like, oh, the fuck, the FBI, won't they work together? But I'm sure the FBI thinks that the police are stupid. Like, we all think the police are stupid. <laughs> like, it totally makes sense. Like, I've been so mad at the FBI being territorial and stuff, but it's like, yeah, they don't respect you. Yeah, because I mean, like, if you look at the hierarchy of it, it's like anything else. The FBI is supposed to be like the best of the best, like the people that go there. So they look down on people like that are lower than them, but also. I do think it's weird that you can't do drugs. Because remember, we met that couple in Nashville where um, he worked as a police officer, like someone's husband, but he wanted to be in the FBI and they tried to recruit him. But when they asked if you did drugs, he's like, I tried weed once and you're done. Like, you can't even... Do it once. It's so crazy. Oh, did I ever tell you that one time my friend got a job at the FBI? Like, not as an agent. I think it was something else. And I was his... interview reference. Like an FBI agent came to my work. We went out for to a like a coffee place and they asked me all these questions about him. It was cool. Did you tell the truth? Yeah. He was a good guy. Like there was nothing I wasn't like, you know. But I just don't understand why you can't be a stoner and in the FBI. I don't get it. I don't think you could have, while it's illegal, you can't habitually be a marijuana user. What if you were like overlooking cases with cartels and, and marijuana? Yeah, but, but once to in have college. To say that you tried it one time in college is crazy. Yeah. Like, because you don't want to, because then if, do you think they like, ha- they could figure out and like, that's why you can't lie? Like, I would just. I thought that I heard something a few years ago that they were changing that kind of thing, but maybe I'm wrong. All right. Well, I, th- we I have- heard they were changing like the whole I've tried it once thing. Like, obviously, if they test you and you've smoked like within the time of the test, maybe they can kick you out because they think you're like a habitual user. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so- whatever. In 10 years, it's all going to be legal. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully. Yeah. No abortion, but we can be high. Um, <laughs> Finn asks if she had mentioned she knew the fiance and he says nope, but she was all business. So then we cut back to the precinct and we're in the bunk bedroom and Amaro is helping Brian into the bed from his chair. And he's kind of pissed. He goes, that was way too long for me to be in the chair. It's like not cool. Um, But he's not tired, he says. And Amaro asks, why? You got something on your mind? So Amaro starts playing a little game to get info. And he says, usually once people confess, it's easy to fall asleep at night. So then he starts talking about Kira and says, is it true? Was she pregnant? So then Harold Paranel, little Brian, He goes, well, that's weird. If she was pregnant, why was she drinking in the bar? That's a good question. Yeah. So he's like, riddle me this. The only sex life I've had in 25 years is all up here. And he points to his head. The other four girls, I remember every single detail. I replay it all the time. The This last girl, it's like the tape got erased. And we cut to Benson and Lewis at the bar. And she asked Dana, is the reason you stayed on the case for Noah? And she admits partly. And she's like, so he called you after the murder. And Dana confirms and, she, and says yes. And then I had to recuse myself because the Bureau um, are real sticklers about that. And Benson's like, when was the last time you chatted? with him before the murder and she doesn't remember. And then Benson gets a phone call and then says, bad news, Brian's recanting on just the last one. He's claiming coercion. And Amaro is now with Benson at the office being like, look, he's not good for this. I know it. Benson is sick of this shit. Nick, listen to me. Dana is not involved. She says she's a dedicated officer just like I am. At that moment, Dana Lewis walks up being like, why is Brian taking so long? So Nick says, "Um, I'll check on him in the bathroom. So Amaro goes to check. 
on Brian in the bathroom and Benson and Lewis are like, let's close this shit out. So Benson and Lewis are waiting in the interrogation room for him when Cragen walks in and goes, sorry, guys, Brian had an accident. So they're changing his clothes. Dana's like, ugh, he's stalling. And if you guys were taping my interview, he'd be in arraignment right now. So Cragen leaves and says, we'll get you a camera. Amaro approaches Cragen to watch from the window and says, okay, Brian's in the crash room and everyone's informed not to go in there. Good. We cut to tomorrow setting up a video camera in the room and um, they're like, listen, Brian is having a lot of stomach issues. Unis are cleaning him up. We got to just, you know, let, that's it is what it is. So Dana asks- I love him, how the excuse is just like diarrhea. We'll be on it soon, but it's just right now a lot of diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dana asks him since he's been spending the most time with him, what's his vibe? And it's the same shit. Like he's sad and feels bad, but not the last one. She thought about that. There's no semen found at the scene. Maybe he failed to perform and doesn't want to admit it. He also says that he seems really upset that she was pregnant and at a bar. Um, so the videos up, Amaro says he was like setting it up and he's like, I'll go check on Brian. So now it's just Benson and Dana Lewis in the room. The camera is set up. And Benson's like, yeah, her parents also said there was no way that Kara would take a stranger home. Did Kara go to school with you and Noah? And Dana responds that no, since he was younger than her and she was even younger than him. But then you were still in contact with Noah, like me, when he met Kira, like, are you sure you, you guys never met or knew each other? And she's like, I don't remember. It was so long ago. And then she asks if she ever met Kira and she's like, honey, I can't remember. Like maybe at a party. And Craig and Amaro are watching the footage of this on the laptop and Rollins and Finn come to watch the show and fill the captain in on what the OG detective told him about Noah not being good for this. So then Rollins goes, but we did find out that Lewis was on the crime scene. And Amaro informs us that she told Benson she was down in Georgia at the time. So lies, lies, lies. Cragen plays uh, sneaky games. He enters interrogation is like, hey, Finn and Rollins are back. Just filling you guys in. And oh, Dana Lewis, the detective from the case, Mr. Sesame Street, sends his best. <laughs> Benson makes a face. I thought you said you were you had to recuse yourself. She's like, I kept my eye on it. And also, why are you even talking to this detective? He's probably senile by now. And then to me, I'm also like, Cragen might be the same age, babe. Like, I don't think you should do that. Because that <laughs> happened to me once. I was sitting somewhere and I was like, well, you know, I have old parents. And then a woman goes, well, how old are they? And then I'm like, oh, this bitch is as old as my parents. Like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, that's like a fun little game that I can relate to. And she starts losing it a little. Like, Noah's not good for it. And where the fuck is Brian? And Cragen's like, ugh, I'm just as annoyed as you are. But he's covered in shit. So why don't you give him a second? <laughs> And Benson is starting to look pissed and Lewis thinks and realizes what's going on and is like, huh, are you looking into Noah and you didn't fill me in? And Benson's like, come on, you had a blind spot for him. And she's like, why? Because I dated him in college. And Benson says, well, Noah says it's much more than that. So Harden says, well, it wasn't to me. It wasn't that serious. I didn't take it seriously at all. And Benson is cold hearted and says, even though he ended it after meeting her, and she's like, I was at Quantico. I'm consumed with my career, not obsessed with some old boyfriend. And Benson trips her up. Boyfriend? So so you did just call him a boyfriend. I see. <laughs> and she says, what's going on here? If I didn't know better, I would say this was an investigation. And Benson, without skipping a beat, asks, should I Mirandize you? Lewis sits down cocky and says, you got something to ask me? Ask me. Benson leans over and says, talk to me, Dana. How did we end up here? So Lewis responds like, where do you think we are? And Benson goes, Brian's not good for this. And then it's like, Noah has an airtight alibi as well. And if you're like me, like we both 
are working in this industry. You profile killers and suddenly you're hiding personal ties with the deceased. Like you can see that I'm questioning what's going on here. And she says, I was in Georgia undercover and I cannot prove it. So Benson laughs and I'm kind of laughing too. And Lewis says, honey, I'm not good for this. Run touch DNA on those gloves and you'll see. So we cut to Munch surrounded by boxes and Craig and over the phone being like, come on, bitch, find those gloves. And he's like, okay, okay, okay I, I'm, I'm trying. So yeah, there's just like so many boxes. And I'm like, I wish Craig could just see how many boxes there are. Like, I want to know where they filmed it. Is it a real place? Did they have to buy all those boxes? Is I this, know, like, I bet it's real. location? I, I bet it's at least a storage facility of some kind. Because like to buy all those boxes, I mean, it was like roof to ceiling, like 50 foot ceilings. So many boxes. Would love to know where they filmed the box scenes. Next time we talk to Neil Bear, let's get this one on. Well, yeah. no, this well, is, this is past Warren. him, but... If we get Warren Light, we'll ask him. So then Cragen hangs up and goes, Finn, go to the boxes. And Finn's pissed. He's so sad. <laughs> so he walks off while Rollins and Amar... He's like, he can't go to Miami and now he has to go to the box room. He's like, now I got to go hang out with Munch. He's going to try to convince me to buy a bar with him again. Like, Fuck. So when Finn leaves sad, then Rollins and Amaro are still in Cragen's office when Rollins suggests following through with the latex gloves and using that since she mentioned them. So Rollins comes in and whispers to Benson and Lewis laughs like, bitch, stop whispering. Just tell me what the break in the case is. <laughs> Rollins comes in and says, you have, you have a problem here. The forensic evidence you talked about is gone. But you know that, don't you? And then Lewis laughs, laughs and asks if everyone here is this paranoid. And Rollins continues, we caught a break though. The detective who checked out the evidence didn't realize that there were two boxes and he only took one. So Dana Lewis, yay, we found a box. How exciting. And then Dana's like, yeah, way to go. Good. Like she's acting so pumped that the boxes are found. She's incredible. She's thinking on her toes and she is Star. Do you remember Star's last name? I just want to say Star Jones, but no, I don't. Star. <laughs> I don't either. So, because she she pled the fifth, like, on the... It's so funny. When I hear plead the fifth, I think about Bravo and Andy Cohen more than I think about the court of law. <laughs> so... Star Morrison. Uh, Star Morrison. Star Morrison. Thank you for looking that up. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, so did you check the gloves he stuffed in her mouth? And Rollins says, no, they weren't in the box, but you know what was? Kira's fingernail clippings and there was blood on them. Benson says, we're going to run the DNA. And Lewis asks, you are? Well, I mean, my DNA might be there. Okay, you're guilty. Like, what? So she says her DNA might be there because I was at the crime scene in the morgue and cross-contamination is the bane of forensics across the country. But it's like, you gave yourself up. This is a, like, this is um, an FBI, like, mistake. Like, you, you could admit that later. Like, once they find out, you yeah. can be like, wait, what? What are you talking about? But to, yeah, like, yeah. preempt that your shit's going to be there, that's, like, a guilty person. And then she goes, and all of these bluffs, you guys, I wrote the book on them. They're, the problem is they don't work on someone who isn't guilty. Noah comes to talk to Amaro, and he doesn't get why he's back there, but he's willing to help. So Amaro goes, you told me that Dana wasn't the one. Did you tell her that? Did Dana know you felt that way? And he says, I don't know. I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I'm sure she did. Like, there wasn't really a breakup. I was traveling a lot. So Amaro's like, oh, so you just, like, faded away, and she had feelings for you? Um, did she ever talk about wanting more, getting married, starting a family? And he responds, yeah, I told her I wasn't ready. Amaro pushes, so how long after did you tell her you were going to marry Kira? A few months. And when he told her she lost it and wouldn't stop shaking, 
And finally he gets it. He asks, so you're telling me it wasn't a stranger? And he's like, so it was more than just a break-in, wasn't it? So we cut back to Lewis and Benson and Benson's uh, playing her. Like, I'm sure there was a super good reason for anything that you had to do. And she's like, you've used every tool here. And if I've had anything to confess, I would just do it so you felt better about yourself. Amaro runs into the room and Lewis is like, oh, wow, cavalry is here to help you. And Amaro is like, we have everything, but we don't have motive. And she's playing like she's excited to hear what the motive is. And he starts like, well, I knew you were upset when Noah told you he was engaged to Kira, you know, in that motel room after you let him fuck you. And she laughs and is like, ouch, uh, playing hardball. Okay, you think I'm jealous of some kindergarten teacher, a small life and a small world? And she asks them if they really think she would sacrifice her career and life for that spec. And Amaro's like, spec? Really? You know, everyone still talks about how beautiful she was and how young, and she stole your future. And she quickly says, my future was at the bureau. And Amaro with the bomb says, well, that's not what you told Noah when he got you pregnant. <gasps> She slams her paper cup coffee wow. on the table and stares up at him. That was private and he had no right to tell you. But he continues to talk like that and he's like, he told you he didn't want a family and then you had an abortion. And she's like, that was my idea? Like she didn't want to do the abortion. And Benson adds, oh, so Noah asked you to. And she pretends like she doesn't remember, but you just said it wasn't your idea. So like, just, you know, who strapped you down, bitch? So mm -hmm. then Benson's like, this is something that affected you. And she's like, I'll get over it. I get over stuff all the time. I've been raped. I've been shot. I'm chill. And Amaro's like, but you've been, you, you were seeing him for like six or seven years. You loved him. And she said, not after he lied to me. And Benson asks, well, then when did he tell you about Kira? And again, she claims not to remember, but Amaro knows. And it was two months, if that. And Lewis glares at him. And Benson plays the empathy game like, damn girl, that stinks. No wonder you blocked it out. Hurt, betrayal. Um, asks you to get an abortion and then leaves you for her. And Amaro asks how she found out that she was pregnant. And she says, Noah told her. And Amaro goes, no, he told me he didn't. She then guesses that it must have been one of the detectives or Kira, Benson says. was it, And it was you. It's like what you told the captain, how Brian found out that she was pregnant while she was begging for her life and she shakes her head no and Benson's like that was fucking you in that room killing her as she begged for her life and the life of her unborn child and um, that's from Chicago do you remember that like mm -hmm. Renee on the stand I thought you would I thought I thought that would <laughs> penetrate and Amaro's like, um, is that how you found out? A week after the motel dumping, Kira was murdered. And she's like, I could never. She says, I'm just like you. I've dedicated my entire life to justice and doing good in the world. You know me. And Benson responds, I do. And she's one of the best, Nick. But she can't help wondering if all that sacrifice is to make amends and make up for that one mistake. And she's like, please don't say that, Olivia, please. And Benson continues on, no wonder you spent so much time undercover because you were running away from yourself, Dana, from what you had done. It must have been so hard to keep that horrible secret locked up inside you. It's time now. You got to let it go. And she's like, I know you. You did not plan on doing this. And she's starting to cry. Her hand is on her chest. So she explains how she went over to Kira's house to talk to her. And she just wanted to tell her, like, she he doesn't love you more than he loves me. He's using both of us. And then she said she felt sorry for Lewis. Like, you can't tell someone you feel sorry for them when they're at the end of their rope. They will kill you. Like, I... <laughs> Not to blame the victim, but like that is a rude thing. Like, I feel really sorry for you. That's going to get someone to pop off. Like, yeah, that's that's not a chill statement to say. Um, 
So she said she felt sorry for Lewis, but they were meant to be together. And then Kira confessed to Dana that she was pregnant and that once she told Noah that she was pregnant, he got down on his knees and asked her to marry him. And he looked so happy and she clenches her fists. And so that's how she found out. She doesn't even know what happened next. There was a body and she uh, looked so pretty, but so much blood. And I like that she looked hot even after murder. <laughs> and she she uh, she remembers looking at her being like, ugh, I bet nothing has ever gone wrong in her whole life. And that sucks. And Amaro's like, but she was gone and you needed to protect yourself. So you staged the crime scene. She's like, I guess I did. I don't really remember. I was so familiar with Brian's like patterns. I was on autopilot. I'm sorry, Olivia. I'm sorry. And Benson whispers, I know. And then Cragen opens the door to arrest Dana Lewis for the murder of Kira Stanger. And she wipes away her tears and snot from her nose and says, I understand. It's time. 25 years. And she gets up slowly and says, okay, I understand. Amaro cuffs her. She gets walked away. And Benson is pissed. And it ends on Benson's pissed off face. Yeah, because Benson was like, this is another one of me. This is like someone like me who's given it all up for the job and like does and and has like a pure heart. And then it's like, nah, you're the only good person. <laughs> well, yeah, because that happened to her season nine with Signature as well with Erica Christensen. Like she, that really touched her too, because it's like, oh, we're like, we're girl cops doing it for ourselves. Yeah. And then it's like, she ended up being a Looney Tune too. Um, also, like, I wonder if Dana Lewis in this moment felt the like relief of a confession that she was telling Brian, usually people feel after they yes. confess. Like, yeah, the brick. I feel like that was like a foreshadowing about the brick and like the weight that. Well, no, I was also going to say like she's married, she has kids. Like, she, it sucks. Yeah. Don't you also think it's weird that they didn't cast like just a smidge of a hotter guy to play Noah? Like, he's such a dork. And he had yeah. this badass, F, like, pre-FBI woman, and then he has this beautiful kindergarten teacher. I'm like, let's get a little bit of a hotter guy. I'm just being lookist right now because I thought Noah was kind of schlubby. But maybe Noah was hotter in his 20s. Sure. Well, let me get into the real case because oh, I... it's it's a wild one, and I Wait, don't know if you do know you anything remember, about it. Do you remember Hot or Not? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Maybe we should play that with Noah <laughs> on our Instagram. <laughs> Hot or not. And we'll just humiliate the actor. Um, <laughs> listen, do you know anything about this case? No, except yes, because people keep writing us obsessed and they want okay. more and more. And you've been dying to do this crime yeah. for forever. So I, um, I, I've, I've heard rumblings, but I'm ready to be educated. Okay. We will be right back after these messages. We are back, and let me take this from the very tippy top. This is a crime that takes place in the LA area, which I honestly completely forgot that this happened, like, so close to, like, where I live. So John Rutten was a student at UCLA majoring in mechanical engineering from 78 to 82. He had dated a fellow student there named Stephanie Lazarus. One source I read said she was a poli-sci major. Another says sociology. Either way, she's from Simi Valley, which is about 40 yeah, minutes outside way, of- useless, useless yeah. majors, you know, it doesn't matter, yeah. interchangeable. <laughs> and this is coming from a sociology major, but like, this isn't real. It doesn't matter. Yeah, so she's from Simi Valley and that's like a, that's 
like a cop town. Uh, that's like, I remember Simi Valley from the OJ stuff. Like one of the cops that took the gloves, like brought it home to his house in Simi Valley and then brought it in the next day to like the police. And so I always associate Simi Valley with A, my friend's wedding I went to there and B, it's a cop town. So that's where she grew up and uh, lived later in life as well. So her and Stephanie and... John were both big sports people. And an article I read said she played JV basketball at UCLA. And I just did not know colleges had JV teams. I thought by the time you were in college, it was like varsity or nothing, but I guess there was JV. And much intramural. Yeah, intramural. I played intramural softball where I like smoked cigarettes while I played. Like, trust me, like I I, I know, (laughs) I know the intramural scene. I wish I knew you in your cigarette years. Like, (laughs) it's just so funny that you'd be ripping cigarettes. Like, Lisa, I was a heavy smoker. Like, I smoked all the time. Like, it was never too early for me to smoke. I'd be like, 8 a.m. on the way to a meeting, I'm smoking. Like, I was a fucking smoker. Much like in the episode, Stephanie and John loved to fuck. Like, their relationship was, like, mostly hooking up and and physical, it sounds like. Yeah. So, allegedly, Stephanie would, like, steal his clothes when he showered and, like, take pictures, like, take naked pictures of him sleeping. Like, she was very horny for him. And then John thought the relationship was mostly about that, just, like, physical stuff. But then this one article I was reading said that they didn't actually even have sex until after they graduated in 1982. Before that, it was just a lot of, like, hooking up. Uh, But then they went on to have sex around 20 to 30 times between 81 and 84. So they were like on and off again, fuck buddies. And um, he was not into labels and says that she was never his girlfriend, okay? In the summer of 1984, he meets Sherry Rasmussen. And I think this case always confused me too because there was a recent case of Sherry Papini, who is the woman who staged her own kidnapping. Do you remember? She was like jogging and she like left her earbuds and then like came back all beaten up. But people were like, it seems like you did this yourself. Did you, okay. I did, no, wild, but I love that. A wild case. I hope there's an SVU based on it. Yeah. Anyway. There's something I love about staging your own disappearance. I really love that. It was like a wild gone, like the real life gone girl is what everybody was like calling it. But anyway, different Sherry's. This is Sherry Rasmussen. And Vanity Fair calls her, quote, a tall Scandinavian beauty with light brown hair, a broad face with high cheekbones and wide set eyes under dark arching eyebrows. Okay, Vanity Fair wants to fuck her. And they both liked to run both John and Sherry like to run. They're both, everybody in the story is in great shape. They just keep talking about how hot everyone's bods are. And both of them had careers that were kind of like taking off. He had just graduated and was like doing engineering shit. She was in critical care nursing, kind of like a wonderkind. Like she was like, started college at 16. And at 27, she was already the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center, which is, I frequent it many times. My kids have doctors there. I have doctors there. I go there all the time. John and Sherry immediately fell in love and they got engaged. Like it was kind of a whirlwind romance. Like I think they met the summer of 84 and they were engaged by like the fall of 85. And um, John testified later that he never told Stephanie about starting to date Sherry because he hadn't seen her in months. And in September of 1984, Stephanie threw John a surprise birthday party for his 25th birthday, completely unaware that he was in a serious relationship with Sherry. Like did not know. So, you know, After Stephanie did find out, she made John come over to her place where she like professed her love to him through tears. Like it's, they they take a lot in this episode from the real story. She also asked to fuck him, which of course he did because he is a man. And later he said that was a stupid move, but it didn't change anything about his relationship and his feelings for Sherry. So he also said he confessed that he fucked 
Stephanie to Sherry and said, don't let this mess us up. I want nothing more in the world than to be married to you. So Sherry knew about this like indiscretion. And I guess at that point, they'd only been dating for three months, but still he cheated. He also said about Stephanie, it was clear she was very upset that I was getting married and moving on, like after she found out about the engagement. And it turns out that the night of their, the night that they had their like closure sex, she had a male roommate who was another cop and that she came home and was like, John broke up with me. And then they did buddy sit-ups together to make themselves, to make her feel better. Like they just did like (laughs) tandem sit-ups. Like imagine if that was how you got yourself to feel better. Wow, the shape I would be in. Anyway, Stephanie also knew John's like entire family and even wrote his mom a letter that said, quote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision, end quote. And John later testified, I always made it clear that we were just friends and this wasn't going towards marriage, end quote. But it's like, people hate labels, but maybe this is why we need labels because like she fully thought this was her on-again, off-again boyfriend and he was like, I thought we were fuck buddies. What's going on? So anyway... Some people thought that Stephanie was kind of trying to insert herself into John and Sherry's relationships a little bit, like third wheel style. Like there was this incident that's written up in a couple places where Stephanie brought her water skis over to John and Sherry's apartment so that John could wax them for her. And Stephanie like was looking all hot in workout clothes when she did it. So John agreed to wax the skis and Sherry got pissed at him rightfully and was like, what's going on? Like, why is she stopping by here for you to do shit for her? And he insisted like, don't worry, like, we're totally donezo. This is not, this is not anything. Like, I'm just doing her this favor. Like, you have nothing to worry about. And then Stephanie came by days later to get the skis and John was not there. And she was in her uniform and armed, which like could be perceived as trying to intimidate this like new girlfriend, right? So Sherry like was begging John to tell Stephanie to stop coming by. And and Sherry was like confessing a lot of stuff to her father like according to Sherry's father, Nels, Stephanie at one point visited Sherry at work, like stormed into her office in, I read in another article, in tight short shorts and a tube top. And I love that. If you're going to be a psycho and you're going to come in and tell some woman to like stay away from your man, you got to be in shorty shorts and a tube top and looking hot. So, and she basically was like telling her it's not done between me and John. And essentially, if I can't have John, no one else can. Like, very yikes. And so Sherry told her dad she thought Stephanie was stalking her. And, but that she said, I'll handle it. Like, I'll figure it out. So Sherry and John did end up getting married in November of 1985. Three months later, February 24th, 1986, Sherry and John are living in a condo in Van Nuys, which is just, it's part of LA. It's just north of, it's like in the valley, just north of like the rest of LA. And Sherry was supposed to go give a talk at work that day. And it was like a motivational speech. And she didn't really think that those worked. And so she was like, I'm not really feeling this. And was telling John, I might call in sick. At 9.45 in the morning, a neighbor noticed that their garage door was open and there was no car in it. And throughout the day, like later in the morning and then throughout the day, John was calling the house but not getting an answer from Sherry. Her sister was calling the house and not getting an answer. And at noon that day, two men who were thought to be gardeners or like workmen in the neighborhood gave neighbors a purse that they found, which did turn out to be Sherry's. And around 12.30 p.m., a maid in another apartment in the condo said she heard two people fighting and something falling. So... 
That evening, when John returns home from work, he finds his garage door open and there's broken glass in the driveway. Also, the BMW he had bought Sherry as an engagement gift, excuse me, was missing. And then he entered the house and found Sherry dead on the living room floor, shot three times, okay? There's no sign of forced entry, but there were signs of a struggle. A vase that looked like it had been broken over Sherry's head. There's a bloody handprint next to the burglar alarm's panic button. There was overturned furniture, stereo speakers. It looked like, uh, you know, a struggle had ensued. Upstairs, one of the two sliding glass doors on the back balcony was shattered. And so that was the glass that he had seen um, on the pavement outside the garage. So... It also looked like at one point the killer had maybe tried to tie Sherry up and she had defensive wounds and a bruise on her face that like implied she might've been pistol whipped with the gun. She had three shots in her. One seemed like it had been fired by, I'm not sure how far away, but the second two shots had been fired directly like with the gun placed on her chest, like point blank range. So any of the three shots probably would have killed her, but this person wanted to make sure she was dead. And the second two shots had been fired through a quilted blanket to like muffle the sound. So there was also a bite mark on her arm, which investigators swabbed for saliva. They took a cast to like compare against teeth and stuff. And then like the silver BMW was found a week later, parked on the street in Van Nuys, unlocked, keys in the ignition, and in the car they found fingerprints, a spot of blood, and a strand of brown hair. Now, Sherry's father, Nels, immediately suspected Stephanie, and he kept telling investigators, check out the lady cop, the ex-girlfriend of her husband. She, he, he didn't know her name, so he just kept saying, check out the lady cop. And the father said that homicide detective Lyle Meyer dismissed it and told him, you've been watching too many cop shows, LOL. So in fact, as we've seen time and time again, this detective Meyer had heard from the neighbors about these two Latino men who had been burglarizing homes in the Van Nuys area and had even at one point assaulted a woman. So he decided this is who did it and he never strayed from that narrative. He just got that narrative like fixed on it and was like, this is it. So John had been at work He had an alibi and he was not a suspect. He was also much like they said in the episode what uh, the original investigator, Roscoe Orman's character said, uh, he was visibly distraught. Like this guy was brokenhearted. Like no one thought it was him. Um, There was no motive, no insurance. They had no history of problems together. You know, like, so it was, everyone testified around them that they were like wildly in love. John himself thought Stephanie had nothing to do with it. And so Mayer believed him and didn't look into it any further. And John also said he didn't know about the work confrontation and that Sherry would have told him if something like that happened. So so he's acting like the dad made up that his daughter told him about this. There also might have been some classic cop cover-up shit going on here because, first of all, all records pertaining to Nell's suspicion about the lady cop and even the interview with John the day after murder where he discussed Stephanie with the detective, with Detective Mayer, are missing. Like, there's no records that have anything about Stephanie except for one. There are audio recordings and notes of every other interview in those first days, which was standard operating procedure, but there were none for any of the interviews where Stephanie Lazarus was mentioned specifically. And And like, is this motherfucker still working? Like, this kind of cop should be fired immediately with no retirement. You know what I mean? Like... That's a great question. I mean, this, yeah, I don't know. This was- Like any other job, if you fuck up like this, like nurses always say it, it's like, if you kill a patient, you're in trouble. 
Yeah. Like, I, I just don't understand how you could be bad at your job, truly fuck up investigations, break the law covering evidence, and then be like, huh, back the blue. Just protect it. We're just our friends. I know. I don't know if this guy was, I don't know if Lyle Mayer was the guy that actually did the covering up. Nobody really knows. Actually, I'll get more into that. But like, you know, he definitely fully just ignored leads because he had his own like uh, version of what he thought the crime was. Like, yeah, exactly what you're saying. He did a bad job. It was 26 years ago. I'm sure he's off the force now anyway, but I doubt he got suspended. I'm sure he's just like retired. So there's audio, audio recordings and notes of every other interview of everyone they talked to in the first few days of the investigation, but there's nothing about Stephanie being specifically mentioned. And both John and Nels remember speaking to the cops and mentioning this person. And those interviews were not recorded or the recordings have gone missing. So later, Nels was extremely skeptical also about the Latino burglars theory. He was like, the crime scene looked like an a struggle had ensued for at least an hour. How would Sherry have fought off two men for that long? Like, that's pretty tough. So Detective Mayer's partner, Steve Hooks, thought that the perp might have been a woman because, quote, women are biters because of the bite mark, okay? She also had not just been shot and killed. There were three shots. Like, someone wanted her ass dead. That's, like, a lot for a burglar. For a burglar to be like, bang, 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 like, I gotta make sure that you're totally dead is a lot. And so no one ever looked into Stephanie Lazarus. And apparently, it seems like Mayor or Hooks may have called her once, and that was it. And no, there's not even, like, a record of that. But the only mention of her in the entire file of this case is a note from November 19th, 1987, more than a year and a half after the murder. And it reads, John Rutten called, period. Verified Stephanie Lazarus, comma, P.O., comma, was former girlfriend. So, and I'll get into that message a little bit later. So there were no arrests and everyone thought it was these two burglars who were never caught and like were at large or whatever. But Nels and his wife, Loretta, like kept going. They offered a $10,000 reward. They went on a show called Murder One and did a segment about Sherry's murder. He kept calling the LAPD, detect LAPD detectives and saying, what about the lady cop? Have you asked the lady cop? And then when DNA testing became like much bigger, because this was the mid to late 80s, like DNA, I think, started popping like early 90s. He called the LAPD and was like, okay, can you run the evidence and the DNA found at the scene? And he was told that the department had a limited budget and could not afford to run such tests. So he offered to pay for the tests himself. And he even had a lab straight up willing to do the work. And he said he was told them that he was told by them that the DNA would do no good without a suspect, which may have been true because their database wasn't like a full database yet. Like it would it might not have solved anything immediately. But Nels wanted the testing done because he suspected Stephanie, but he never got a chance because guess what? Just like in the episode, the evidence fucking disappeared. Some random detective not connected to the case allegedly signed it out. The man has no memory of doing that. And so the evidence just disappeared. Infuriating, okay? Like just gonzo, any detective can sign out any kind of fucking evidence and it doesn't matter. This man may not have even done it. Someone could have just looked up a random cop's name and like written it down. So for 18 years, the file and whatever evidence was left was just like rotting away in storage. And in 1989, wildly, John even met up with Stephanie in Hawaii for a scuba trip. And first he called the detective to confirm that Stephanie was not linked to his wife, wife's murder. And Meyer was like, yep, no suspicions at all. Have a aloha, have a great time in Hawaii. The Vanity Fair article, like that has a lot of the information I'm using, but also other articles, but this one had like an amazing, like very detailed profile about this. They said they reconnected in Hawaii. I don't know if it was romantic or what, but 
down the road, John remarried. Stephanie married another cop. She, uh, John, yeah, I think maybe had kids. Stephanie uh, adopted a daughter with her husband. And she also moved up as a cop. Like, she had a pretty distinguished career. She was very well-respected. She had no write-ups in her file, unlike Stabler. And so almost two decades of silence in this case. And then in 2004, which is apparently in 2001, the LA police, LAPD police chief started a cold case unit because crime had started to fall in LA. So they wanted to like, okay, if you cops aren't doing anything, you detectives aren't doing anything, let's get you working on some of these cold cases. So this woman named Jennifer Francis was a criminalist with that unit and she got Sherry's case. She was very confused when she started going through the files. She was like, where's the swab from the bite? Like, where's the DNA, like the swab from the bite? And she's like, since it wasn't in the file, she checked the coroner's freezers by hand. The swab was found in a manila envelope that had somehow like taken on moisture from the side of the freezer walls. And so the case number had worn away, but it had Rasmussen written on the front of it. But evidence is usually stored by number, not by name. And so whoever gathered up the evidence in 86 had just like left it in the freezer where it sat for 18 years because it didn't have the number, case number on it. Inside the envelope was a screw cap tube and inside the tube were two swabs. So in January of 05, she ran the DNA through CODIS and there were no hits. But the result did show that the bite on her arm had been made by a woman. Just like that first guy fucking said and no one even chased it down. At this point, Jennifer Francis does not know about Stephanie or Nels's theory or anything because there's nothing written about her in any of the files for a cold case officer to even discover. So maybe one of the burglars had, like the fact that the dad keeps calling the LAPD and no one even jots it in the notes. No one even says, dad really suspects female cop. Dad really thinks it's this person. Like there's nothing about her in the notes except for that one little note I read earlier. So they're like, okay, well maybe one of the burglars had was a female. That's like not typical, but there's no female suspects in the file. So guess this will just sit in evidence and this everything just goes back into storage for another four years. Now it's 2009 and the case pops up again when Van Nuys homicide detective Jim Nuttle, he notices the same thing Jennifer Francis did, that the DNA report kind of like fucked the entire working theory of the crime. So he tells his boss named Robert Bubb, I love that name, who assigned two more detectives, Mark Martinez and Pete Barba. They all started looking through everything and were actually like, Hello, Barba. Yeah, there's a Barba on the case. So they start looking through everything and they're actually like, okay, the working theory was that she walked downstairs, surprised the burglars and the burglars like tussled with her and then shot her, okay? But that doesn't even make sense. Like when they at, when they look at all of like the, when they reconstruct the times, the crime scene themselves or like that doesn't even work. Like what happened was the intruder went upstairs and surprised her. And then a shot was, two shots were fired at her that missed and that shattered the sliding glass door. And that's why the glass door had was, was shattered. So the perpetrator came upstairs, surprised, Sher- surprised Sherry, tried to shoot her twice. Sherry somehow manages to get downstairs and tries to reach for the panic button on the alarm system, but the killer stops her and they start fighting. Sherry at one point must have managed to get the gun away from the killer and put the killer in a headlock and then the killer bit her to get her free. So when the kill, that's when the killer hit her with the vase, which incapacitated her long enough to get the gun back. And then that's when she was shot. And then they took the quilts and fired the two more shots through at point blank range to make sure the job was done. 
So then the killer tried to stage the scene to look like an interrupted burglary. Like there were CD player and like a VCR and stuff like stacked on top of each other that had like a bloody fingerprint on it. So they made it seem like it was a burglary interrupted. Um, And the detectives working on the case in 09 noticed in that original message where it said P.O. next to Stephanie Lazarus's name, they're like, what does that mean? And then they figured out it was police officer. So they looked her up And they found that as of 2009, she was still working in the art theft division. Hello, our friend Joyce Art Management. This is a small squad that investigates art theft and fraud right across the hall from homicide. So they go to- I love that homicide and art are next to each other. I know, but like apparently she was great at her job. She had like, she had been building up this really big case for three years against this person who had like stolen art from an old person and was kind of like participating in elder abuse. And like, there was this like a valuable piece of art. Anyway, that case went to shit and I'll tell you, you'll find out very soon why. So they call John Rutten, the, you know, the, the husband in the case. And he was like, yeah, you guys have always known about her, but I don't think she did it. And he refused to believe that she had anything to do with it. Then they called Nels, the dad, who's like, are you actually fucking kidding me? Like, I've been calling you guys and telling you guys about this fucking woman forever. Like, how are you just calling me now in 2009, years after this crime, 23 years after this crime, and asking me about this woman? So they start thinking about it, how a cop would do this. Like, how would a cop do this crime and how would they cover it up? First of all, they would do it on an off. They wouldn't do it while they were working. So it must have been a day that they were off duty, a day off. They find out, yes, Stephanie was off on the day of the murder. What about the gun? A cop would never use their service weapon because obviously that's very traceable, but most cops have more than one gun. So they found out that she actually, after she graduated college, had registered for a 38, which is the weapon used in the murder, and that she had reported it stolen a few weeks after the murder had taken place in, in Santa Monica. All this information was right there for the cops to find in, in 1986. They just never fucking looked for it. Like, they never even checked into Stephanie Lazarus's background. Like, what was she doing that day? Oh, she was off. Does she own any weapons? Oh yeah, she owns the murder weapon. Like so much crazy, lazy police work. So now these guys need her DNA, okay? But they don't want to ask her for it. They want to get it sneaky style to not alert her that they're onto her. So they follow her and her adopted daughter to a trip to Costco. And after they eat, they grab the drink cup that she leaves behind. Classic. You don't think this shit happens, it happens. And then the DNA from the bite on Sherry was done, done, a match. So I'm just scared like the dad is dead by this point and never saw justice or did he know? I, oh, he knows, God, he knows, Kara. he knows, okay, don't worry. Okay, So in June, the whole fucking department. In June, 2009, they bring her in to talk to her and, and you can watch the entire interrogation on YouTube and it is in the show notes and it's wild. Like you just can like tell she's guilty, but she's also like, this is, what What are we talking about? This is crazy. Like, it's it's nuts. And did she look super hot? Was she wearing a tube top? No, or was she I, think in uniform? Her, I think those days are behind her. She has kind of a wild face. Like, one of the articles described her as having, like, an elastic face, like, like big expressions. And, like, that is kind of what she looks like. But I also think people overact a little bit when they're guilty. So they bring her in. At first, the questioning is very casual. They're like, so we're working on this cold case. Had you ever met Sherry? And she was like, God, I don't know. Like, it's very like the way that we're talking to Dana Lewis at the beginning. Maybe at a party? I I really, it was so long ago. I can't really remember. And like, it was 23 years ago, but it's like, 
you would remember meeting your ex-boyfriend's like new wife. I don't know, you just would. And at least meeting her at one point, maybe not exactly what you talked about, but meeting. She's like, yeah, I think her name was Shelly, Sherry. So she's pulling all that shit. Like you haven't been thinking about this for the past 23 years nonstop. So she's sighing and saying geez a lot and like really putting on an act. Like, what? geez, what do you guys, I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, I saw her one time at her work. It's not like we went to lunch or something. Like, it's wild. And they're asking her if she ever had a physical altercation with Sherry. And she just kept saying, that doesn't sound familiar. I don't recall that. Like, super, super off the wall. This is like incredible. And she's remembering... As they keep going, her memory is coming back more and more. Like, yeah, maybe I did talk to her at her work one time. And yeah, like, maybe I did talk to a detective after she died. She says she found out about the murder from a poster at her work. Like, that, like he didn't call her. She didn't know from him. Like, whatever. So she got pissed eventually and is like, are you accusing me? Do I need a lawyer? And they're like, no, you're here of your own free will. You can leave. And she didn't. But then later, after more and more questioning, she does walk out. And as soon as she walks out, they formally cuff her and arrest her, okay? And she keeps saying, this is crazy. This is absolutely insane. That's what she keeps repeating as they're arresting her. And she was apparently, as I said before, mostly beloved by colleagues and people were very shocked to hear about that she could have had something to do with this. But a few colleagues actually said that she could get angry kind of on a whim and they had a nickname for her, which was Spazarus. And I mean, obviously that's a problematic word. I'm not using it. This was the, you know, 80s and 90s. So she was allowed to retire early from the LAPD after her arrest. And it's like, yeah, duh. She will not be coming back to the squad, I don't think. So she was arraigned in July of 2009. She pled not guilty. There wasn't a bail hearing for six months, which is nuts. Like, it is wild to sit in jail for six months waiting for a bail hearing. But, yeah, but she deserves it. Right. But bail was set at $10 million, which is like double what the prosecutors even asked for. And her lawyer was like, Robert Blake and Phil Spector, both on trial for murder that they most definitely committed, both got $1 million bail. And they're like millionaires. So it's- Yeah, but you're a cop. You, yeah. you know what I mean? I'm sorry. Like, you're a murdering cop and you rot in jail for six months. Like, I give a shit. Yeah. I, the amount you had is no just, problems destroying evidence and like... The amount is just shocking. It's like, yeah, but why aren't you giving $10 million to millionaires who killed their girlfriends? Like, I don't know. That could They could be getting $10 million as well. But I see what you're saying. Like, it is a, more like an abuse of power and I'm sure they like look down on it more. But... Eventually, a judge like set aside some charges that would have allowed them to go for the death penalty. Also, I am just reading in this, at this point in my research, I read for the first time that the marriage certificate was stolen in the attack. So this woman was like full on scorched earth, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, stole the marriage certificate. Wild. I can't even. So... I don't know why this trial lasted for like two and a half years. I think it's because her lawyer had like a million pretrial motions and they all had to be heard. And it was like trying to exclude her, the warrant of stuff they found in her house because her house like didn't exist when the murder happened, trying to exclude all this other stuff. But in March of 2012, she was convicted for the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. She was sentenced to 27 years in, in jail. She has attempted to appeal her case several times, but lower courts have upheld the conviction. And she is serving her sentence at the California Institute for Women in Corona. And after credit for time served before the trial, she will be eligible for parole in December of 2034, which is in 12 years. So the Rasmussen's 
did sue Lazarus and the LAPD. I found both of the cases online, but real law cases are extremely hard to read. My mind cannot like absorb them. But I found out that essentially Nels's case was dropped as time barred because they waited too long to file it, I guess. And then all the lawsuits were either were dropped against the LAPD or were found in favor of the LAPD. So apparently a reinvestigation by the department did not find that there was any evidence of an internal cover-up, of, of course. But, you know, I don't really think they have an IAB guy like Tucker trying to fuck the cops over all the time. He's probably like high-fiving them like, oh, did you burn that box of evidence? The missing evidence from the case file is a complete like mystery. It remains completely unknown what happens to that evidence. And... uh as I was reading this, I was like, how has this not been a movie? How has this not been turned into a movie? Like, this is a wild case. Like, this would be, at worst, a Lifetime movie, but at best, you could make it into, like, a super cool, like, psychosexual thriller. So I find a Deadline article that Endeavor and Anonymous Content acquired the rights to Matthew McGuff's book, The Lazarus Files, colon, A Cold Case Investigation. This is a book about the case. I, I used one of his articles as a source that he wrote in The Atlantic, this is a book about the case and the LAPD cover-up that this guy worked on for nine years, and he also did a podcast about it. So it turns out that the woman who created— Remember when we talked about the act and Gypsy Rose and how this woman wrote an article and then and then sold the rights to the act to her article? She sold the rights to her article and created the act, and I feel like Gypsy Rose was, like, pissed at her. So this woman who wrote that Gypsy Rose article and, and created the act is the one who has been uh, hired to adapt this into a TV show. Her name is Michelle Dean, and she was— This is an article from March of 2021, so maybe it's still in the works, but it's been a year and a half. Maybe it got scrapped. I'm like, can I write it? Like, I'm obsessed. Let us in. Yeah. Let us in. Like, I think this yeah. could be such a cool movie, and, like, it's the Vanity Fair article. I, I, you know, all who would play her? Who, who would play? play who her? would play her? Um, in my notes or what? Like all my sources are great, but this Vanity Fair article is like great because they bounce back and forth between bits of her interrogation and what happened in like real in the case timeline, and they just go back and forth. And I feel like it's a, it's cool. It's like a cool article the way they did it. So I could see why I could see that article being optioned for. You know, but I think that his article may have done the same thing. McGuff's article did the same thing. So whatever. This man, Matthew McGuff, worked very hard on this case. And I hope that he gets some TV money out of it. But that's that. And they took a lot of it. Like in in SVU, it was 1987. In real life, it was 86. Like there were just like tons of, tons of uh, similarities. Yeah, damn. She still good. maintains her innocence. I mean, like, she never said, like, all right, fuck it, I did it. But, you know, I think if you've been lying to yourself and covering up a crime for 23 years, you might actually believe you didn't do it. Who knows? I'm, like, looking at her face trying to think who would play her, and I can't... I'm not casting it as quick as I'd like. Oh, yeah. Let me look. We'll figure it out before it airs. We'll do it. I don't know. Yeah, let's go to our interview, and in our postmortem... We will cast this woman. Guys, our guest today is an actor who has positively affected the lives of literally 
thousands, if not millions of children, multiple generations, best known for portraying Gordon Robinson on a little show you may have heard of called Sesame Street for 42 GD years. He's also been featured on the series The Wire and Blue Bloods, but today you know him as former case detective Jerome Howard, now living the good life in a crazy sweater of retirement. Please enjoy our chat with Roscoe Orman. Oh my gosh, this is thrilling. I can't really? believe we're talking to a legend. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we gotta know, how yes. often are people stopping you on the streets? How often? Yelling Gordon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's 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 the main attraction for, for, for viewers. <laughs> you know, af after what, 40 years of, se of Sesame Street is, uh, you know, it's pretty phenomenal, actually. Yeah. Uh, but I've done, you know, so many other projects, you know, uh, film, of course, theater, live theater, you know, Broadway, off-Broadway, regional theater, you know, so many different. I, I forget most of what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like when people see you, it's like when you see a teacher outside uh -huh. of school or something. Like, right. I, I just can't imagine the excitement. Like a kid. Like if kids yeah. see you after they've yeah. seen you on Sesame Street. It's like, right. what? <laughs> so you said you don't remember a lot of stuff you've done, which makes sense. You've had a very long career, but do you remember your SVUs? That's what we're here to talk about, of course. And like, we're here to talk about the episode that you were in Secrets Exhumed. But as I was doing the research, I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot that we, we've we already covered the episode Signature. And you were in that episode as well where you found the dead body. And we got mm -hmm. so many messages from our listeners that were oh, like, wow. you guys didn't mention that that was Gordon from Sesame Street. And we were like, <laughs> oh, sorry. Like, Wow. That's that's really something. I, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, because it was just like you're, you know, your scene is like you're with a kid and you guys of find course. the dead body, and the scene is so gross that I think I was it focused is. on that and not on you. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I was a park ranger, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yes, right. yeah. Yes. Wow. <laughs> brings back some brings back some memories, you know. <laughs> so when you did, so I mean, obviously SVU is like could not be a further walk away from Sesame Street, right? Like, it's a completely different type of show. Well, there is one other thing I, I did, well, actually two, that are really far removed from Sesame Street. One was all my children, but I was a bad guy. Ooh. And I was doing Gordon, you know, simultaneously. So it was like, you know, who is this guy? Is he is he Gordon or, or is he Tyrone? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. I used to watch All My Children when I was really little. So I bet if I had ever caught you and then caught you on Sesame oh, Street, that would have been a really confusing that time for me. Very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. My uh, little, you know, uh, uh, time with uh, Tyrone on on uh, All My Children was it was uh, kind of looked down upon that this, this guy who was, you know, uh, on a children's show was act was also a pimp on. On all my children, yeah. So that was that was something that I had to kind of, uh, yeah, you know, recover from. <laughs> and, I, that, and you know, I I wasn't I I didn't have to, you know, leave leave uh, Sesame Street for having appeared as Tyrone. No, I mean, 
Isn't yeah. that what acting's all about? Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. A pimp one day, big bird's friend the next, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess because they're both on during the day, there is a possibility. Like with yes. SVU, it's like, SVU's on at 10 o'clock at it's night. At Kids really night. shouldn't right. be watching, right. they shouldn't be awake watching TV, but all my children, all I my guess children. it would be confusing right. if you were sh- checking around for PBS and you see Gordon and you, as of Tyrone. You see, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can really identify with that, yes. <laughs> Especially since I have, you know, five children of my own who, yeah. you know, of course they know that I'm I'm really dead, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. can I ask a question about Sesame Street? And I don't, maybe this doesn't make any sense, but uh, was mm-hmm. there a, a specific Sesame Street character that you uh, felt like you connected with the best? Oh. Like you oh. and Oscar, you oh. and Herbert, you and Ernst, oh. like who's who's the guy? Uh, uh, well, my favorite uh, pu- uh, character among the puppets was Elmo. Oh. Elmo. A fave. Elmo. Elmo, Frank Oz, who was the puppeteer, was, is, I should say, a genius. I mean, he has so much, he brings so, so, so much humor and, you know, he's so quick on his feet. He makes up stuff that, and, if, and of course, if you're working with him, you have to really you know, uh, be on your toes because mm-hmm. he's uh, he's that good. He's able to, you know, create on the moment, you know. And uh, so it was, it was always fun working with him. I worked with Frank Frank Oz a few times. Not Frank, Frank Oz, uh, Jim Henson. Jim Henson, of course, worked with him quite a bit. Carol Spinney, of course, who played uh, Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, both. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, Oscar the Grouch, and who was a grouch. And of course, Big Bird, <laughs> who is the sweetest natured thing, human, or not human, but creature. <laughs> creature. Wait, how world. did she do both? Because I feel like Big Bird and Oscar no, he, his were name is, together. His, his name is Carol. Carol. Oh, it's Spinney. a guy. C A R R O L. Carol Spinney. <laughs> but he, how yeah, did yeah, he do both. What, what did he do when when Big Bird and Oscar had to interact? They didn't. Oh, they. Oh, didn't. I can't believe it. I don't think I ever noticed that. No. Which no. Muppet do you think would um, sadly be on SVU as a criminal? <laughs> oh, <laughs> my <Monster>. goodness. <laughs> I guess Cookie Monster would be the most. <laughs> yes, yes. And Cookie Monster was, um, oh, gee, who who played the Cookie Monster? Oh, that was Frank Oz also. Frank Oz oh, was yeah. a genius. Yeah, he did Cookie Monster and, and Grover. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. guess I could also see Oscar the Grouch finding a body, you know? Of course. He's, he's of in the course. garbage, so, yes. you know, he could yes. be on the show, too. Yes. And, uh, and, and then there was also El- Elmo. I don't know if you remember remember Elmo. Of the, course. How can you forget? Red, yeah. How can not remember the little red monster? No, there's something weird about Elmo, like, the, the way that, like, kids are obsessed with Elmo right away. Like, oh, my yeah. three-year-old saw Elmo, like, just on a thumbnail once and was like, mm-hmm. that, I want to watch that. And, yeah, like, they, you know... They identify with him because yeah. he's, he's the kid. He's the kid yeah. on the block, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, cute. Yeah, yeah. Some wonderful times. You know, we had so much fun. You know, and we were, we were like family anyway, you know. We knew those characters, you know, as personal friends and their creators, you know, were just geniuses. Now, when you go on sets, like mm-hmm. when you showed up on SVU, were mm-hmm. people extra excited to see you? I'm assuming people... Well, if they grew up watching Sesame Street, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
For this one, though, did you know Harold Perrineau from... Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Harold, yes, yeah. He's so yeah, guy. he he was like guy. the main bad guy in this one, but um, mm-hmm. well, not really. Well, well, no, not in the end, but yeah, mm-hmm. but he, you know, the twist is that it's not him, but uh, mm-hmm. di- but you are playing this cop that they go back to, you know, check on yes. your info from when you were, and you were like really easy breezy, like I believed you were a cop completely, like okay. I wasn't getting oh. Gordon anymore at all. Like, all right. had you been a cop before? <laughs> Had oh, yeah, play, I've, I've, I've played, played several, several cops oh, yeah, okay. over the years. Yeah, I think yeah. I saw you were on The Wire. You played a cop. The Wire, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you're just like sliding right into the cop language and just talking to them <laughs> like you were another cop. And it was That's like right, very, right, yeah. Right. yeah. We yes, need you sure. back on SVU as a criminal. You know, you played yeah. a cop, you played a park ranger. We need you mm-hmm. back as okay. a criminal. Yeah. Yes, no more yes. Mr. Good Guy. No more this Mr. Good like, Guy. It's like you should really explore your, you got to murder somebody or something. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so hopefully they're listening. Yeah. Thank you so much. Do you have any yeah. other stories from Law & Order SVU or oh, anything you'd like to share <laughs> it's with okay. our listeners? We know it was a long time ago. A so long if you, time No pressure. Ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I love, I, I still love doing live theater. And whenever I have have the chance to be on stage, you know, whether it's off-Broadway, regional theater, you know, uh, or Broadway, you know, I just Mm. love that experience of being with a live audience of people who give you all that energy because, you know, they're in the moment too, you know. And uh, so that's that's my favorite kind of. Well, I hope we see you on a stage soon. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. sweetie such a sweet man oh my god i love gordon slash roscoe up in slash jerome slash jerome slash grandpa i really loved it you know what i just realized i didn't mention in the intro that i'm really passionate about i um was with someone that worked on svu and i got iced tea's lunch order texted kara no response. No response. I, like, when I looked at the timestamp of it, it was the second I got on the highway to drive two and a half <laughs> hours back from San Diego to LA. And then I just forgot. I was like, Lisa's texting me about, like, hot dogs and iced tea. I don't know what's going on. And then I just completely forgot to respond. And later I get the, I cannot believe you didn't respond to this text. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Well, so for those wondering, he eats one of three things every day for lunch. It's either two hot dogs. One is a chili cheese. One is a sauerkraut mustard. Or he has two slices of pizza, sausage or pepperoni. Or he orders a Subway sandwich. The meatball sub with cheddar. A legend. So I just love that he has that. Like, if you are that rich and still eating Subway, you're a real one. Like, sometimes Cardi's um, husband. Are they married, Future? No, I don't. uh, Offset. Offset. I don't think they're married. I think they're just, uh, you know, partners. Together. He eats like, he eats really silly things. I wish I remember. Oh, like he'll make mac and cheese with ramen noodles and like weird stuff <laughs> like that. Like I like people that still kind of um, don't fully change. Like I'm sure Ice T's eating caviar once in a while. Oh, wait, but I love I'm that. an asshole. I just looked it up. Cardi and Offset got married on my birthday in 2017. You and they're dumb still married. Bitch. You dumb bitch. According to. Uh, according to their, yeah, according to the internet. So I did we see I any wedding photos? Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think we did. I don't think we did. 
I think it was like one of those things they just got married and, oh, it says that they did it in their apartment on this one episode, this one uh, thing I'm on. So, Um, but yeah, I love when, that is funny when like people like could literally be just eating sugar fish sushi. Like they could be eating like the best of the best and they're like, a Subway meatball sub. Give me that yoga mat bread and then put a meatball on it. And I want that. <laughs> but this was a, this was like another, uh, this is a banger of an episode. I fucking loved covering it. I don't know that there's any like lessons we could learn. Like, I think it's like, the lesson is like, you're always going to get caught. Even if you think you did it, like you got away with something. I feel like you're always going to get caught. Like there's all these killers that we find decades later, you know? Golden State, BTK, like even people that didn't taunt the cops are getting caught. So just think, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a fucking murderer, you should know they're going to find you. Yeah, just release it. Take the bricks off your shoulders, <laughs> Take those man. bricks off of your shoulders, babes. <laughs> um, yeah, but we also, this is a lesson we learned time and time again. Um, cops are not to be trusted. They will lie to protect themselves. They will do whatever it takes. Like, it truly so bad at their jobs, refusing to see outside of their opinions or actually do work or listen to grieving parents trying to find the killers of their daughter. Like, they're truly trash. So I think we learned that. And we learned if you want to accost someone, wear a tube top. Make a statement. Yes. Put those shorty shorts on, a little bit of that ass hanging out, and get a tube top on, and then get over to that girl's place and say, if I can't have him, no one will. But then just don't murder her. And I know you guys wanted um, who's playing this person. We'll do a poll. I, I didn't even think. I can't. I know. I can't. I can't think of we it. Can't. I can't think of it. She, like, looks so nuts. You know what? I bet Sandra Bullock could do a fun job. She's You're right. kind of, like, you know, Sandy Bullock playing, like, someone unhinged. She's never done that. I think that would be fun. She was a little unhinged in Forces of Nature, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Not yeah. in a bad way. Yeah. So let's move on to What Would Sister Peg Do, which is our weekly segment where we give you guys an article, an organization, a book, something to give you more information about what we talked about today. And we want to direct you actually today to another podcast. Not, uh, you know, don't leave us, but this is an episode, Wicked Words, which is a podcast on our beloved Exactly Right Network, um, where the host, Kate, interviews uh, Matt McGoff, I think that's how you say his last name, Matt McGoff, about his book, The Lazarus Files. And um, we will link to that if you want more info from him because he's really like the expert on this. I could never cover what he covered in nine years of researching this case. Um, so definitely check out that episode. We will have it uh, in our show notes, of course, and it will be in our Instagram highlight titled, What Would Sister Peg Do, WWSPD? Amazing. Thank you so much. I really want, I, I don't, yeah, this is a wild case and I bet lots of you want to know more. Like it is so interesting. So thank you for that. And next week, please join us. We'll be doing Dominance season four, episode 20, 420. Um, <laughs> so get stoned and watch uh, a horrific crime and great acting and great sexy guest stars. Okay. Bye. Bye guys. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. 
Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.